You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is What were the ABA's first shots at the NBA? Hi, this is Jason, and welcome back to Over and Back. I had a really good in-depth conversation on key NBA and ABA battles off the court with Rainus Lattice, who is the host of the Handle podcast and has the Lamar Matic YouTube channel. He's been on the show before, and uh, decided that it was pretty extensive and in-depth, so we decided to break it up into smaller chunks. So here is part one of that conversation, looking at the very early years of the ABA and NBA battles. So... Hope you enjoy it. Thanks. You know that Nylon Calculus is the place to go for smart but accessible analysis of all things in the NBA. And now there's a new podcast called Nothing But Nylon. Hosted by Kevin Farragan, it is a place where NBA writers and researchers discuss their ideas and talk hoops and analytics in a smart way. Check out Nothing But Nylon on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or find it at the Step Back. We talked about the the key ABA and NBA battles on the court, and now we're going to get into what they did off the court, which honestly is just as, if not more, fascinating um, to me. Uh, just so many really crazy stories about battles in the courtroom and battles over players, secret contracts and double-dealing agents and crazy stuff, some of it which we will definitely uh, get to, but it was... It really a transition, I think, to an era that was more of a mom-and-pop type era in the NBA and the ABA. You know, they escalated the salaries, um, led to the NBA choosing to expand, bringing in a whole new class of ownership, um, much richer owners and much more um, coming from different backgrounds than the kind of the previous generation of owners, and that just led to a whole different um you know change to the professionalization of the game it also changes in what type of players were being brought into the game both from a from a you know economic and racial and all, all different sorts of uh changes in the types of players who were coming into the league and and greatly expanding that pool as well so just r- really a revolutionary period yeah, the, the exhibition battles we, we talked about are, are really just small potatoes. These are the real fierce battles between the two leagues, and uh, it, they determine the way 
certain owners and then and certain executives looked at each other uh, throughout the, the process of uh, ABA trying to duel with the NBA. Absolutely. And you, know, you look into the original ABA formation in the in early 1967 and you know from the outset the the goal of the ABA Dennis Murphy and the other organizers you know who were really part of the initial part of organizing the ABA was basically to create something that would force a merger with the NBA the American Football League had done this uh in the early 60s uh, it formed a rival league. They got a um, a national televised deal and were eventually able to get strong enough to the point where they forced a merger with the NFL and created the behemoth that the NFL is today. Um, of course, pro basketball wasn't necessarily in the type of shape where that was necessarily an obvious thing to do, where you know the, there was definitely a lot of skepticism as to whether that would be successful. But um, a lot of people had, you know, vision of getting in on the ground floor and, um, I, you know, it obviously worked out in a certain sense because the, eventually there was a merger and the NBA is it turned into a really successful league. But it certainly the path that it took to get there, I think it was different from what anyone envisioned. Yeah, and in, in typical ABA fashion, as you said, the, the league was not set up during the best time for pro basketball. Uh, the NBA did have a deal with ABC, but they almost ex- exclusively would broadcast games on Sunday. So if a finals game fell in the middle of the week, so be it. It, it could be left off TV. But, you know, Dennis Murphy wanted to start the league. He, he liked basketball and the rest is history. So there wasn't any research on anything then beforehand of, of that sort. And in a way, the league was as absurd from day one as it would be later on at times. Yeah, and I mean, potential investors were told that they could get an ABA team for what half of what it would cost to get an NBA expansion team, and uh, then you know, ABA officials said that you know the investment would more than double once the merger occurred, and it, it was always thought of as you know maybe like a roughly three year period between when the league would form when they would force a merger, and that obviously took much longer for reasons they didn't expect. Um, you know, really unrealistic, I think, in terms of being able to having expectations of being able to sign established NBA talent. And, um, and there were lots of turnover quickly in the early ABA ownership, just, you know, many of them didn't really have much money at the entry um, cost to get into the ABA relatively little. So it, it, it took a while to kind of separate the, you know, the the dreamers from the people who actually had real money. Um, really, I, th- I think the one of the keys to just the early success of the ABA was the fact that they were able to get George Mikan aboard. That you know, Mikan was a guy who could um, he, he had a name and he had credibility and he could um, uh, he, he was he, he probably still the most famous basketball star at the time. You know, next to you know Russell and Chamberlain, having had played you know through the mid fifties and was you know for a generation was absolutely what pro basketball was defined as. Yeah, and you, you get the sense that some of the other people involved were either hang-oners or, or weren't really ready for, for owning a team in, in a pro sports league. So having someone as, as legitimate as Mike can certainly help the ABA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so looking at the, the first NBA player who signed with the ABA was Leroy Ellis of the Bullets. 
However, he has a contract dispute with the uh, Nets, uh, who, actually the New Jersey Americans, who eventually became the Nets, and ended up back with the Bullets and did not play in the ABA. So that's sort of an inauspicious start uh, for, for how that worked out. Looking at the 1967 essentially was the draft although in the ABA in some of these cases the players were not officially drafted we're going to kind of look at each draft and see you know which of the league you know got the stronger players which leagues quote-unquote won the sweepstakes between getting the incoming college talent the uh, top consensus all-americans in the NBA were Jimmy Walker Clem Haskins and Sonny Dove Uh, for the ABA was Mel Daniels who was actually the number nine NBA draft pick uh, Louis Dampier and Bob Varga, so fairly equal there. Uh, the other notable players in the ABA, Byron Beck, Bob Nedelicki, and Jimmy Jones. In the NBA, it was Earl Monroe and Walt Frazier. The superstars really came from the, um, uh, were not the All-Americans uh, that year. Uh, and looking, I think looking at the All-Americans is useful because even we know that not necessarily those guys are not always necessarily you know drafted you know, highly. I mean, the, the college success doesn't always translate to the NBA success even then. But I think it's useful in terms of giving you a sense of, you know, star power of these are, you know, the most famous college players coming into the league. And I think that matters, especially during this point. Yeah. And the, the ABA needed all the star power to get. Uh, we will we'll go through some some of these particular cases of ABA franchises trying to entice NBA players and, and lure them over. And one, one really has to understand how tough it must have been putting together a roster from from scratch. It, yeah, and in the future, in the 70s, the ABA would field rosters just as good as NBA teams had because they had something to build on. But when you look at some of those teams from the from 67 or 68, they, they really are full of no-name guys who lasted for a year or two. As some of them randomly average uh, points in double digits before falling off and the competition got tougher. And, and I'd say that with all due respect to them. I, I mean, they were good enough to make the pros, so more power to them. But getting uh, someone like Mel Daniels or or uh, getting the Rick Barrys of the world come over, even if for every bar- Barry, three other NBA players uh, didn't ultimately jump the ship. It it was huge just to get a few of those guys to, to get the, the thing rolling. Absolutely. June 1967, uh, just almost before the first ABA season, uh, prospective LA ABA franchise ends up holding meetings with Elgin Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain. Um, by the way, this is from the compendium of um, a professional basketball by Robert Bradley, which is an outstanding book. Uh, a lot of the uh, got a lot of uh, of this timeline from that book, so it's a, a fantastic resource for anyone who isn't familiar with that book. If you're into basketball history at all, I, I highly recommend it. And the Houston franchise also held contract talks with uh, Wilt uh, to the Houston Mavericks. So they there was at least some attempts at you know approaching the star players and uh, trying to get them to come along. But uh, really, only in one case was there a super you know big a- NBA star who um, signed with the ABA, and and that was sort of a special case we're talking about here. Uh, Rick Barry, he. Um, Signed a contract with the Oakland Oaks, who were owned by Pat Boone, who had um, signed his uh, father-in-law, Bruce Hale, who he played for at the University of Miami. Um, and the Warriors owner, Franklin Muley, you know, was probably didn't handle the negotiations particularly well as far as, you know, Barry was willing to stay, but the, the money was better with the Oaks. The promises, some of which weren't fulfilled for Barry, were stronger in terms of uh, team ownership and in terms of some control that he th- thought he would have that, that he did not have. But um, 
eventually there was a lawsuit uh, that came of it, and the uh, California court ruled for the Warriors, which meant that Barry um, had to honor the option year of his contract before he went to the um, ABA, and he, he opted to sit out for the season and actually was an announcer for the Oaks rather than playing for the Warriors, which he theoretically could have done. Um, it, it's interesting that of the we mentioned already, of course, um, Leroy Ellis, but the other um, – NBA players who signed ABA deals, Wayne Hightower, Jim Barnes, Bob Love, Clyde Lee, Joe Strotter, and Chico Vaughn. Only Hightower and Vaughn actually ended up playing in the ABA. The rest of those players that did not um, do so. So it certainly wasn't a high percentage of uh, players who were you know, making the leap, although the ABA did initially have quite a few players who had um, had at least some ABA experience and NBA experience. And somebody like Freddie Lewis, for instance, obviously you know, thrived quite a bit in the league, even though he was an NBA cast-off. Yeah, and, and plenty of those guys, as uh, as I previously mentioned, they they found a second opportunity in pro basketball. They had had some short stints in the NBA, and ultimately it gave them a, another chance. But yeah, uh, when you when you look at their overall career arcs, uh, it, it seems as if the the guys from from the late sixties and the first seasons of the ABA weren't the top talents that that the league would have later on. Right. So, um, August of 67, George Mikan first reveals the red, white, and blue uh, basketball. It was his idea. He thought it was better to see uh, on television. Um, and obviously, one of the iconic um, elements of the ABA is the red, white, and blue ball. And it was extremely popular um, as a marketing tool. And a lot of kids bought them. Unfortunately, we'll get into that a little bit. The ABA didn't really see much uh, profit from the red, white, and blue ball. Uh, Mikan was also a strong proponent of the three-point shot, um, which another innovation of the ABA, although the idea is credited to with Bill Sharman, who coached in the the previous league, the ABL, which had used the uh, three-point shot in 1962. So it, it did come from there, although Mikan was, you know, had the vision to include as part of the league. And obviously we, we, we've had previous episodes talking about how you know the you can draw the line between the three pointer in the ABA to you know how it's developed in the NBA now. And he, another um, uh, important move by Mikan was allowing Connie Hawkins, Doug Moe, and others who had been banned unfairly from the NBA to play in the new ABA, which brought in some really much needed talent uh, into the uh, uh, ABA. Roger Brown, also another uh, important player who had um, been blackballed for unfair reasons. I do hope that Red Auerbach later on learned that uh, his own uh, his own Celtic Bill Sharman was the one who is credited with, with the three point shot when uh, when Auerbach was the one who hated it so much. It, it is quite ironic. Yes, well, he did. Uh, eventually, Auerbach did uh, turn around on it once he got Larry Bird. So uh, yeah, you know, who wouldn't <laughs> exactly. So jumping a bit ahead, but to May 1968, there was uh, one of the first uh, high-profile legal cases of within the ABA and the NBA. The a court ruled against the Minnesota Muskies, which forced Lou Hudson to return to the St. Louis Hawks. He had signed a three-year contract with the Muskies, um, but was still obligated to fulfill his option year with the Hawks. Um, he had played at the University of Minnesota in college, so he had roots there. Uh, eventually, the Hawks offered Hudson a five-year contract, and he decided to return to St. Louis. And uh, Minnesota tried to get Hudson to fulfill their contract, but it didn't work out for Minnesota, and they and Hudson ended up. So, not that Hudson was necessarily a really big star, but he would have been, you know, a fairly prominent player to jump from from leagues, and that certainly would have 
maybe been some benefit there. Yeah, he he's a, a, a six-time All-Star and uh, was one of the better wing players in the late uh, 60s, early 70s in the NBA. So certainly he he would have made some difference by by joining the ABA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so looking at 1968, um, the consensus All-Americans uh, going to the NBA were Elvin Hayes and Wes Unselt. Going to the ABA, the, the less prominent Larry Miller and uh, Don May. Uh, other notable players in that draft, uh, the for the NBA, Tom Berwinkle, uh, Don Chaney, and Bob Kaufman, where uh, ABA, Jim Eakins, and Ron Boone were both very good players in the ABA, but clearly... You know, Hayes and Unseld were, uh, you know, Hayes was the certainly the prize of the draft that year, and Unseld obviously had a Hall of Fame career, so they were really the players that um, made a difference in this year. Yeah, Larry Miller probably has, has gone in basketball history more so as, as a Tar Heel great. He never made an ABA All-Star game, so his resume pales in, in comparison to Hayes and Unseld, but uh, his career does have the footnote of, of the ABA record in points scored as he poured in 67 points against the all-offense, no-defense rookie Johnny Newman. So uh, Larry Miller will always have that distinction and be worthy of, of such a shout-out because uh, that's, uh, that's a record that is likely never to be broken. Uh, in, in, maybe in case someone that takes the new ABA too seriously, you can say that someone, someone might have broken it there, but otherwise Larry Miller is the, is the, rec- is the record holder in points scored. Absolutely. Uh, so March 1969, uh, the ABA filed an antitrust suit against the NBA, saying that the NBA pooled its resources to a stifle competition. They basically got some documentation from an NBA mole where they were basically able to demonstrate that the NBA had basically worked out a draft strategy to get uh, players to the teams that it that it wanted to sort of ahead of time rather than letting the, the natural draft process um, order. So basically cutting a bunch of deals ahead of time to facilitate getting the um, players to the teams. And the ABA was doing similar things, but the they had not written it down where the NBA was. So they saw this as an opportunity to kind of get them to the bargaining table to get them to, you know, to, to, to force this merger. Um, ABA also asked the court to uh, void the option clause used by the uh, NBA so that they could you know, have access to their the players more immediately. They also accused the uh, NBA of blacklist players and, and coaches who had signed with the ABA. Yeah, the, the crazy part is that, and, and this shows how far we've come, uh, is, is that the option clause was, was considered progress back then. And for, and for that to be considered uh, fair, it's unbelievable nowadays. That's how, for example... Uh, Billy Cunningham but would sign with the Carolina Cougars yet play out another season of basketball for the 76ers before actually joining the the Cougars. So they meanwhile were waiting for him to come over and were kind of having a, a pro-way season and that's 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 in a way free agency back then. Yeah, absolutely. So 1969 uh, drafts the uh, for the consensus All-American the the, the the great prize of the uh, the draft of course was Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who went to the uh, Bucks. There's we've talked about pr- previously George Mikan um, having a million dollar check in his pocket, but not giving it to Alcindor, blowing a chance for um, <laughs> f- for the ABA to get him. Um, also, uh, going to the NBA was B- Bud Ogden, not quite as famous as uh, as Kareem, but uh, w- 
And then in the ABA was uh, Spencer Haywood, who was a sophomore. We'll, we'll get more into Spencer just a little a little bit. But um, he was not drafted by the – or not the, I don't think he was officially drafted by the ABA, but he signed with the uh, Denver Rockets. They may have done some secret draft because they were always doing those in the ABA. But um, I, at this point, the idea, I think even the idea of ABA um, drafting a underclassman was, uh, of course, uh, uh, beyond the line of thinking that you know basically anyone was, had at that point although it would soon change. Um, other notable players in this draft, and there are quite a few. For the NBA, uh, Bob Dandrich, Steve Mix, JoJo White, Bingo Smith, Norman Van Leer, and Butch Beard. For the ABA, um, Matt Calvin, Willie Wise, who actually I think were both technically undrafted or at least drafted very low. And then Larry Cannon, who was the number five uh, NBA uh, draft pick for the Bulls. So they lost out on Larry Cannon, who had a, a solid but not spectacular career in the uh, ABA. Yeah, that, that's quite a crop of uh, talent talent for uh, among uh, backcourt players. But uh, the NBA is still at this point uh, get, getting the best the best guys. I mean, between Dandridge, uh, Jojo White, uh, Norman Lear, there there are some uh, serious players and and then serious uh, playoff series from the seventies. Mm-hmm. So. Um... In June of '69, uh, Connie Hawkins, who had been the really the top star of the ABA, in particular its first year, led the Pipers to a championship. The second year, he had dealt with some injuries, but was still a, obviously a stout player and, the, and and basically the best player in the league. Uh, settled a six million dollar lawsuit with the NBA, thus um, uh, clearing a way for him to be able to go to the for uh, the Phoenix Suns and. Um, he one of the stipulations for that was that he could not sue the uh, NBA, so he was the only player who was not actually part of the later Oscar Robertson uh, lawsuit. Um, and also, um, uh, Doug Moe and Roger Brown, who we had mentioned, both had been blackballed by B- the NBA. They um, both filed a lawsuit against the NBA, and eventually uh, they were able to settle with the league out of court, although um, neither of them chose to join the uh, NBA. Only Hawkins of those of that crowd of players decided to do so. But that's an interesting footnote nonetheless. And that's that's basically like 50% of, of the major star power ABA had uh, right there. It, uh, between Connie Hawkins, uh, Roger Brown, and Doug Moe, those are, uh, I believe those might be the, the free first uh, ABA championships, uh, Connie won with, uh, with the Pipers, then there's the Oakland Oaks title, and then, then there's Indiana, and uh, all of those guys played uh, key roles on those teams, so yeah. that that's that was a savvy way for the ABA of, of coming up with, their, with uh, premium talent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another player who came close to signing with the ABA but then did not do so was Dave Bing. He planned to sign with the Washington Capitals, um, they, they had just moved from Oakland and Rick Berry was not gung ho about going to a Washington, uh, but was held to his contract and eventually forced to go there. But, uh, being felt he was underpaid by the Pistons and, um, jumped at the new league signed for $50,000 for three years. But then the team decided to move from Washington to Virginia, which gave him a loophole to opt out. And then he got, basically the same deal from the uh, Pistons to do so. But another player who, you know, not not a transcendent superstar or anything like that, but definitely a, you know, uh, one of the better guards in the NBA and, you know, might have brought um, at least a little bit, particularly if it had worked out well for him in Washington, you know, may have brought some um, where he was from, um, uh, you know, that, that may have worked out, you know, fairly well. 
then not nevertheless uh, a hall of famer so yeah right, <laughs> any exactly. hall of famer you can get is yeah. better for the league and for for some reason nobody ever wanted to go to virginia i, I don't know rick <laughs> barry had a problem with virginia it seems like dave bing also uh, skipped the, the moment he he could have uh, went back to to the nba when when the team moved uh, not the not the best move by earl foreman although I, I suppose he didn't have much of a chance given given the money problems he had yeah, I, I I guess part of it may have just been reputation of Virginia, you know, just being so rural, and the other part of Virginia having you know three to four cities where that were technically its home. So, the amount of travel I'm sure for players was not uh, particularly enticing, you know, and the market size, you know, they were not going to be able to get nearly the attention they would in a decent sized city. Yeah, being a superstar in the late '60s, not not the same thing as, as being one man. Yeah, yeah, you can pretty much play anywhere now, and it's fine. But but then obviously the, where you played made a huge difference. Um, in uh, so soon after uh, July 1969, uh, George Mike ended up resigning after he'd failed to sign um, Lou Alcindor, and there there'd been some pressure between um between him and the owners uh, for a few years over Mar- Mike and. Um, wanting to stay in Minnesota because he had a travel agency there, refusing to relocate to New York. They kind of felt like that was a little bit of a, you know, made the ABA seem small time and, you know, kind of other pressures of, you know, not necessarily getting along. But um, I I think Mike and did, uh, you know, he he sort of credited for really doing a lot to establish the league. But once the league started to, you know, um, after a couple of years, they maybe they need somebody else in that spot. Yeah, and and the TV contract is the the thing. Ultimately, no nobody re- really got it. But uh, the the thing that he also uh, was was I mean I imagine most of the people involved are hopeful that he he could bring it home, and that's something he didn't do it. So it it seemed right that they would move on from him. Yeah. Um, in August of 1969, the, this was really the first. Um, at least reported talks between the NBA and the ABA. And um, they didn't last particularly long, but um, the things that sort of kept them from happening was uh, the ABA, um, the Carolina Cougars uh, signing Billy Cunningham to jump from Philadelphia, and also uh, Denver signing uh, Denver signing a college underclassman in Spencer Haywood. And also the Oaks uh, moving from Washington, which was con- or moving to Washington rather, which was considered an ABA territory. So all those things kind of, you know, kept things from um, advancing forward. And specifically, uh, Spencer Haywood, which we'll, we're going to get into in quite a bit of detail. All right, that is the end of part one of our look at the off-court battles between the ABA and the NBA. We'll be back with part two soon, looking at the Spencer Haywood case, looking at what the 1970 merger settlement would have looked like if it hadn't have been blocked, and also looking at a ABA raid of NBA refs. So lots of interesting stuff going on there. Hope you've been enjoying both our basketball mysteries of the 1970s and our regular podcast at our new home at The Step Back. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So uh, keep checking us out. Please leave those ratings and reviews if you are liking what we're doing. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So until next time, thanks for listening. We're back again soon.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.